All right, guys. So, you know, last four weeks we've been talking about apologetics, and obviously that's we've been over the last four weeks of it's not apologizing for anything. It's actually proving why you believe what you believe, and and being able to stand firm in that and uh, explain that to other people. Um, so we're pulling all of this from. You can keep clicking through slides here, Max. We're pulling all this from uh, Chris Hilkins. Uh, apologetics here called Parents Guide to Apologetics. It's on Spotify, Apple um, Music, whatever they call it, podcasts, I think. Um, but you can always scan this QR and go straight to Spotify if you want to. Um, so Chris is a guy that pastors out and pastored past tense in uh, uh, California. And so he, he has five kids here. You can see one, two, three, four, five. Um, when his wife had their, five, their fifth kid, um, she had been healthy as a horse with her mental health and then all of a sudden um, declined very quickly when she went 10 days without sleep. Um, and long story short, she ended up taking her life in a mental facility. Um, and so Chris was left with their five kids. Um, and from then, he has gone on to the Dad Tired podcast as kind of a, a partner with uh, Jared, the guy who runs that, and um, has been teaching quite a bit, especially in the area of apologetics, which is crazy to think because he would have every reason not to, right? He would be every reason to be angry at God um, for what had happened to him and his family and his wife. Um, and so it's, it's especially cool to kind of pick his brain and see, um, but he's kind of a nerd and he talks really, really fast. So if you do listen to the podcast, put it at like 0.8 speed um, because he talks really, really fast. Um, and I've had to listen to it like three times. So the whole point of what we're doing is that there's a ton of really great stuff in there, but I want to try to like truncate it into something that we can actually digest over a few weeks. Um, and so that's what we're doing here. Um, the kind of key verse that we want to hit every time is 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16. If you can throw that up. Um, so, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, meaning the people that come and ask you, um, but if in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So it's basically saying, be ready at any time to give a defense. That means like if somebody comes to you and say, what's different about you? Why, why do you take things in stride so much better um, why do you just live so joyfully all the time? Um, uh, just what, what makes you different? Um, you should have an answer for that, and you should be able to explain why you believe what you believe, and that's what we're trying to do here. Um, and then it also says to do this with gentleness and reverence. It'd be easy to take this stuff and just beat people over the head with it, like, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Do it with gentleness and reverence. You should never use this as a weapon unless you're using that weapon to bring somebody to Christ, right? It's a double-edged sword. So the argument that we're going to talk about tonight is the problem of evil. Has anybody ever heard the question, like, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, or uh, you'll hear this later on in college, the question of uh, there can't be a God that's all-powerful and all-good, right? Because bad things happen. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit tonight. But that's basically that the whole argument is that it's not a, it's not a uh, very scientific one. It's more uh, philosophical, and you think about it more than you study it. Um, but the problem of evil is that the fact that there is evil in the world. You just have to look around and see that it's there, 
you see terrorism, you see all these things that we heard Matt talk about last week. Um, evil is real, and it is very prevalent in our society. And so we have to look at that in the face and realize that God is all-powerful, and he sees all that <coughs> happening, and his plan is coming to fruition. And so all these things are happening. It's like, well, how do I make sense of that? How can I um, have both of those things be true, that God is all-powerful uh, or, or sovereign, however you want to look at that word, and then also all good? So we're going to get into that tonight. So there's three different uh, problems that, that they kind of, or ways that they look at the problem. We'll put it that way. So it's the logical, the emotional, and the evidential. Um, and we're going to go into those three. But the logical is this, that God can't be all-powerful and all-loving. So that's, that's what you'll hear anytime you go to a, a philosophy class or uh, just basically any class that you go to at a state college. They're going to start bringing stuff up like this because if they can get you to doubt God, then it's easier to, to teach certain things and, um, without question. <clears throat> but we know um, that God can be all-powerful and all-loving. But we can't just say that, right? We can't just say, well, because he is. Okay, let's talk about that for a little bit. The solution that I've kind of come to from studying this and listening to Chris is that um, contemporary Christian philosophers of religion have largely dismantled the logical problem. So that, that whole phrase of God can't be all-powerful and all-loving, Christian philosophers have kind of like picked that apart and shown, yeah, that doesn't really add up it's it's kind of a stretch because you can have a god that is all powerful and all evil <laughs> you know you can have a god that's all powerful and aloof or doesn't care at all um so you can have a god that's also all powerful and all loving right just philosophically um they're not thinking about the god that we have in scripture they're talking about a god any god um we're, but we know who our god is um, but part of this logical problem is that there's three things at work. God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, and evil exists. And according to atheists, they say that you can't have all three of those things be true. God can be you know, all-powerful and all-loving, but uh, so there's no evil in the world. Or you can have a God that's all-powerful and evil exists, so he's not loving. Or you can have a God that is loving and evil exists, so obviously he's not strong enough to take care of that evil. Does that make sense? So they try to, to pick that apart and say it can't be all three of those things. Well, all you have to do is go to Exodus 34, which we've done at length before, to see who God is. So when God explained himself and, and introduced himself to Moses, he did it like this. He said, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So God is both and. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the the conquering king and your best friend like he's he's strong and yet also uh sensitive if that makes sense so there's there's two uh parts of who of god's nature that come into play and when you paint god into a box and say oh he has to be all powerful and yet can't be also loving because all these evil things exist it doesn't add up because this is who god's saying he is 
he maintains faithful love, but he also will not leave the guilty unpunished. So he's a just God, but he cares about us, right? So he has to keep the law, but he also has grace for us. He showed that by dying on the cross, right? So another way to think about this is that God sets a perfect barometer for, for suffering. So imagine, so this is something that Kate and I often pray, um, that God would give me enough so that I don't starve, but not so much that I forget about him and become prideful and say like, well, I've, I've got this. I don't really need God anymore. And so when it comes to suffering, God has set that dial exactly where it needs to be in order for people to want to pursue him. Because if it was just a post-apocalyptic world where it's like there's no hope, they would give up hope, right? They would never turn to God because there's not any hope. But we're not there, and we're also not at the point where God doesn't let anything bad happen to us. And so stuff, bad stuff does happen, and it causes us to turn to him. Or we screw up, and his kindness leads us to repentance, right? The whole point of, not the point of it, the reason that there is evil in the world is because of sin. The fact that we choose our own way instead of his. So, God sets that, that perfect setting so that people will come to him, but they also <coughs> will feel like there's a reason to. They, they haven't given up hope, but they also have a reason to turn to him. Does that make sense? Okay, so the next one is the emotional problem. So this one just kind of puts logic out the window and uh, kind of relies on feelings a little bit more. It says, I refuse to believe in a God that allows suffering. So this one is saying... Even if that's true, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and choose not to believe it um, because my emotions are, are driving my thought process, not logic or anything like that. Um, so they say, I refuse to believe in a God that allows suffering. And you'll hear this a lot, especially when people have gone through really tough stuff. It's You'll hear their, their testimony of, I believed in God and I don't anymore because my dad died or we lost our child or... Um, I had family that died in Ukraine or something like just terrible things that happen. And so they blame God for it. Um, and that's, it's a very compelling argument, but it kind of puts logic out the window. So the solution there is that when you look at scripture, God delivers you from your suffering by dying on the cross and giving you eternity with him. Right? So he eventually will deliver us from suffering. And he also shows himself present in the midst of that suffering. So I've kind of taught on this before. Go to Romans 8, and that is a great place to go to in order to kind of understand this a little bit better of why we go through suffering. Um, but what all you need to know from that chapter is that we have eternal hope in Jesus, and we have present hope in the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is what lives in you and helps you walk day to day. Um, so... The solution is that God delivers you from your suffering and also uh, shows himself most present in the midst of it. So let's go to Romans 8. Then. So if you go to Romans 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So that, that verse basically just says, like, well, if I go through all this really tough stuff, but then heaven is better and it kind of like outweighs the scales of pain 
to where like this wasn't as bad as the good that I can have in heaven. Um, it's it's not worth thinking in that regard because heaven is so much different than we can possibly understand. And we're only here on earth for like this amount of time in relation to the entirety of eternity. Um, and so we live in this, in this present suffering and it sucks. I'm going to be honest. Like it hurts. And God sees that. And he knows that because he lived through it. He came here on purpose and was tortured and suffered and felt everything that we feel and then was killed because he knows that it, it hurts and it sucks. And so he came here to die for us and show that he, he has felt that. First Peter 5.10 says, To God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, establish, and strengthen and support you after you have suffered a little while. So he allows that suffering, but he's also present in it. And a lot of times, it's it, we'll get into this in a minute, but a lot of times that suffering is where God is most palpable. Most You can feel him the strongest in those moments where you're really going through something. You have to have God, like we talked about before, right? When you have suffering, you turn to God for help. Um, and he shows up in some of the most tangible ways that you'll ever experience. And if you've never been through something tough like that, um, I don't know, maybe pray for it. <laughs> because then you can feel that. You can feel that that presence that he gives when he knows that his children are suffering. So this last one is the, the evidential problem. This one's probably a little bit uh, like the most, the most compelling one, the one that we actually have to think about, um, because it's still very logical. It says, it's improbable that God has a good reason for allowing the suffering. So if the suffering's happening, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to this person. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they would go through the suffering. Um, and so that's their reason for not believing that God exists. Um, so it's improbable that God has a good reason to allow the suffering. So the solution for this is, is pretty simple. Our purpose is his glory, not our comfort. Does that make sense? So the whole reason we're here is to worship God. And when you look at things in a humanist mindset, it's like, well, I just want to try to get as much as I can out of life, enjoy myself, have a good time so that when I die, I know that, you know, I've, I've done everything I can and I've checked off my whole bucket list or whatever, and I've been comfortable. Like, well, that's not the purpose of why we're here. And if you are thinking in, in that really s small mindset of like, okay, this is, this is all I get. I'm going to live it up as much as I can. And you forget about eternity. You're going to be sorely disappointed when you realize that if you don't put Christ as the center of your life, you will spend eternity apart from Christ. And then you'll look back at those memories as a distant past that you'll never experience again. So it's not about how much we can get out of life. It's not about being comfortable. It's about giving glory to the God that allows us to have eternity with him. He just gives us the choice while we're here. So our purpose is for his glory, not our comfort. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this. Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, 
because we know that afflictions produce endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So I, those, those are really good to even memorize, Romans 5, uh, 3 through 5, because it says, uh, so afflictions produce endurance, endurance produces proven character, proven character produces hope. So in essence, affliction produces hope eventually. You just have to go through the tough stuff and, the, and grind to get to that point in the pursuit of Christ to get to that hope. And you can have that hope now and eternally. 1 Peter 2, 21 says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, as an, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So what's the purpose? To follow in his steps. To, to see that Christ came to suffer for us, and see that for what it is, that we're supposed to, to emulate that and, and reflect that. So we should suffer. We should go through tough stuff, especially putting ourselves in uh, situations where other people are suffering, and we and we live in that with them. Because Christ did. That's what he did. That's why he came here. So 2 Corinthians 4 says this, in verse 16, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For... Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So he's talking about, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. They have been suffering over and over and over again for their faith and being flogged. Do you know what flogging is? Anybody? So flogging is like they have a whip and it has uh, shards of, of rock or glass or um, just terrible things. And they use that whip and they dig it into your back and then they pull out. Flogging, a lot of times you just think it's like a beating. It's much more than that. And that's what Jesus went through before he was hung on a cross. But also Paul and the disciples and people that followed Jesus' lead because they didn't, they refused to to uh, renounce Jesus and, and say, like, oh, no, he wasn't actually God. They knew he was God. And it's actually one of the proofs that we have that Jesus was who he said he was. Because a normal human being wouldn't go through that type of pain if they didn't truly believe in what they were getting hurt for. Does that make sense? So they were getting beaten and bruised and flesh ripped out. And they said, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So again, it's just like Romans 8 where it says it's not worth comparing the incomparable weight of glory. Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God about the, the Holy Spirit, and he goes into an example about how there were these Christians that were um, taken into a POW camp, um, put up, or they were taken by Al-Qaeda, um, and so they were in caves, I'm not really sure, I haven't read up on this as much as Matt did on Sunday, but um, so they were taken, and these Christians only had each other, and so they 
they spent time worshiping while they were in that place and they suffered but they also had like i said before this connection this visceral experience with god that they they had they hadn't experienced before that in in that to that extreme and then they were uh rescued from from that area and brought back to america and often those guys will text each other, call each other, whatever, and say, do you ever wish we could go back? Do you ever wish we could go back into the caves and, and continue to be beaten and, and be imprisoned and, and starving? And I just miss that connection with God and with you guys. Wow. <laughs> Our perspective is just so off because we're so comfortable. Like I said, he sets the barometer. Because if, if we were so comfortable, we wouldn't even know that God existed anymore. Because we wouldn't pursue him. We wouldn't be making sure that the Bible is translated generation after generation after generation exactly the way it's supposed to be in the, the languages that it needs to be so that people can have this hope, right? So there's this guy named B.J. Murata. He wrote a book called Liturgy of Wilderness. It's, it's kind of heady and stuff, but he has this one quote. Essentially, you will never get out of the wilderness. Stop trying. <laughs> oh, very hopeful. Um, but the rest of this quote is, is pretty important. So from the first moment you inhale to the last moment you exhale, all your breathing will be wilderness air. So when you hear that word wilderness, he's talking about uh, <coughs> the Israelites being in the wilderness waiting for their time to go into the promised land. Um, for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness until that moment where God allowed them in. Um, and that's essentially what we're experiencing now, and we're waiting for that eternal glory. Um, but let's, let's read the rest of that. So, all your breathing will be wilderness air. Humanity was born in a garden, and it will consummate or come to fruition in a city. But... In between lies the wilderness. So many of life's anxieties today are the product of an attempt to escape this in-between, this wilderness tension. So whether we like it or not, before Adam and Eve, everything was perfect. And then sin entered the world. And this is what we're experiencing now. But for eternity... If you have chosen Christ as your Savior, and you have put to death your sin, one day we will get out of the wilderness, and we will experience something that we can't possibly even understand how good it is. And everything that we suffered while we were here will seem like a distant memory that we can't, we can't recall because of how good it is to be in the presence of God. Anytime somebody spent time in God's presence physically, they said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And they wanted to be dead because they knew that that was right. That they didn't deserve to be in that place. They didn't deserve to be in the presence of God. And so the fact that God sent his only son to die for us, a grisly, gruesome, painful death, so that we could then spend that time in that secret place, that, that place that is full of glory and joy and no more tears or pain or suffering or any of it. 
The fact that Jesus did that for us and that God sent his son to do that is beyond words. But right now, we live in the wilderness. So what do we do with that? Because eternal hope is great, but it doesn't help me right now in the midst of what I'm going through right now. take into effect that that barometer is set to the point where you still want to pursue him and that you still want to see what goodness he has for you. So you pursue him and you ask him to enter into that place with you. You are never alone in your suffering because you can always go to him. You can always talk with Christ. You can always go to his word and find some of these scriptures that are so good for your heart in those times where it hurts hurts, and you don't know what to do with it, he is present in that. I'll, I'll leave you guys with this, but um, sorry. Um, today, um, <clears throat> we were clearing out the nursery at our house, and strong earlier. Of course it was now. Um, uh, we were going through the closet uh, so that we could have Everly's room set up. She's our youngest. And uh, we kind of happened upon um, our third daughter's urn. Her name is Bailey, uh, and she would be three. Um, sorry. And it hurts that she's not here. And if I'm being honest, I just, it comes in waves, and sometimes I'm fine, and sometimes I don't really think about it, but sometimes it just hurts. And I have Christ in me. I have the Holy Spirit in me. And it still hurts so much. And so Kate um, was going through it this afternoon. And we both just sat and, and just felt that. Because we know, we know someday we're going to experience pain with her. We're going to get to know her. And it's going to be great. Uh, but our experience right now, life is the longest thing we've ever experienced. And it's really long. Uh, and I miss my daughter. Uh, but I know that he's present in that pain because he says that he is. And that I can turn to him at any moment and realize that he feels it on even a deeper level than we do, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, and we don't know the reasons why he took her home early. Um, but honestly, I don't want to think about that too much, and I kind of just put it in his hands. Of, he took her early because he, he wanted to, and it was his right. Um, she was never ours. She was a gift. 
And he's a good God, and so I trust him. But it hurts. Um, sorry, I don't want to go into that too much, but um, he's a good God, and he's worth trusting. And some of those waves of grief that Kate and I have gone through throughout the years are the times that we have felt most connected to each other, and we felt as connected to Christ as we've ever been. Um, because we had to. Because we had to lean on him for our next breath, for our next, um, whatever the next right thing is to do. Um, we, we just ask him, what do we do now? Um, and he would give that to us, and we would continue to pursue him and each other. But we do also have each other, um, and I don't want to say that lightly. Uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, you are here to support each other and to enter into that pain with people um, and to emulate Christ in that, that he came to die for us and he came to suffer for us. And so the least that we can do is to enter in with our friends and their suffering and to try to just be present. It's called the presence or the, the ministry of presence. You don't even have to say a word, just be there. Uh, and sometimes that, that presence of having somebody in the room that understands is, is more than words could ever do. Um, so I don't know what you guys are struggling with, um, but I would leave you with those two things. Pursue Christ for hope and pursue each other um, because we're all trying to pursue him together. Um, and so as a, as a minister here, um, we should be loving each other. We should be looking out for each other and, and seeing when we're struggling and, and stepping into that and not scoffing at it, not laughing at it, not doing anything but seeing it for what it is and trying to live in that with them, to enter the pit with them. So God is real. The problem of evil doesn't do anything to negate that. If anything, it makes it more real. It makes him more real um, because we get to experience him on a deeper level. So I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you so much for um, this series. Thank you for Chris and, and what he has had to go through um, and that you are redeeming that and changing lives because of the suffering that he went through. Um, even right now, I just pray that you would bless him and his family and help him to, to step into that single fatherhood role and um, to know what to do next and to do the next right thing in, in light of your glory and that he would continue to pursue you for hope and strength um, and discernment and that we would do the same. So God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.